Welcome to the Family Feast podcast from Liberty Church Swansea. For more information on church life, please check out Liberty Church Swansea on Facebook, Instagram, or on our website. We love you, and we pray that this message really blesses you. Thank you. Hello, everybody. It's uh, lovely to meet you, even though I can't see you. I love to talk to people to meet people one-to-one, to interact with people, to get to know people and to share in that way. But it's not possible during COVID and we have to be thankful for means like this just to be able to connect. So I'm thankful to be able to talk to you a little bit today about my life. My name is Jenny and I live in the northeast of Scotland with my husband Brian and four, our four youngest children. We have nine children. Um, for still at home, although they're all grown up, really. So today I uh, would like to speak to you a little bit about brokenness. I've had the words to a song on my mind. Um, many of you will be familiar with the song. It's called Broken Vessels. And it goes like this. All these pieces broken and scattered in mercy gathered, mended and whole. And, you know, that verse, I love it because it just speaks to me about my life and about the life of my family. My family was scattered. My family was broken. I was broken and the pieces of my life were scattered. And after I gave my life to Jesus, he began to put that life back together. He began to put those pieces together. The Bible says that he makes all things beautiful in their own time. So yes, I I was a broken person. Um, but I grew up in a broken home. I had broken parents. You know, brokenness often starts way before we come on the scene. We just don't realize it. You know, we're only aware of ourselves and, and life, you know, from when we were born. But brokenness can go a long way back in families because we're humans and every human being has struggles. Every human being has relationships that sometimes fail or that are lost or that just don't work out the way that they're supposed to. And those things shape us. Those things shape the lives of our grandparents and our parents, and they shape our lives. And they go on to shape the lives of our children. And it can cause devastation. But, you know, thanks to God, he can put those pieces back together if we trust them to him. So I was born um, in an unconventional family for the time. It was 1967. And uh, my father was over 30 years older than my mum. I was born in London. My father worked in the city. He was also an organist, a very accomplished musician. He used to play um, organ recitals in St. Martin's in the Fields in Trafalgar Square at lunchtimes. My mum actually met him uh, because she was a member of his choir. My mum had had a very turbulent, um, teenage, had very turbulent teenage years. She didn't know who she was. Uh, She had been born in the middle of the Second World War in 1943. Um, She knew that her mother was Polish and that her mum had left her in the care of of a children's nurse who was running a wartime baby's home in Devon. And her mum, whose name she only knew as Helena, had uh, promised to come back and collect her only baby, her only child at the end of the war. But she never returned. And and my mum told me many years later that she was like a a lost luggage parcel. When all the other children were collected, she was left behind. I didn't realise that that sense of rejection and abandonment would profoundly affect my mum and had profoundly affected her ability 
to make, you know, meaningful relationships with the people closest to her. She had a big family herself. She ended up having seven children, five with my father, and then I have two um, other siblings with uh, with my stepfather. Um, she tried to create a family to replace the gap that she, she knew nobody, but she couldn't connect with them. So I grew up in a very, very violent home. Um, we lived in a, a lovely village, a little village, sleepy village in, in Buckinghamshire with leafy winding lanes and, and beautiful thatched cottages. It, it looked like a jigsaw puzzle, you know, a picture postcard. But behind the, the doors, the closed doors of, of our picture postcard um, home, I grew up in, in tremendous fear and terror. Um, my mom just didn't know how to control her rage. And everybody suffered, including my father, who was not well, really. So that continued for 10 years uh, relentlessly. I, I, I don't have any memories, really, of, of there not being a time that I was frightened or a time when I, you know, wanted to go to my mom and tell her something that maybe was bothering me or if I hurt myself, I would never have dreamt of going and, and letting her comfort me. There was no comfort. She she wasn't all bad, you know, my mom. Um, just She just was... Uh, out of control, I suppose. Today, we would maybe recognise it as mental illness. But she cared about us too, I believe. She was very articulate. Um, she was very um, engaged in the village, things that were going on in the community, um, socially very capable. And so people didn't recognise what was happening in our home. And that often happens, you know, with abuse. We think as adults that will recognise if a child isn't being treated properly or if something's wrong or, or you know, there's something going on between a couple and we'll do something about it. But it's not always that easy. For an abused child, they're very isolated, cut off, lonely. They can't, they can't seek help, mostly because you're afraid, you know, of the repercussions if you're not really helped or you don't want to be taken away from what's familiar, even though it might be better. Well, when I was 10 years old, uh, my mum left to um, go and live with a new boyfriend and she took my youngest brother and sister, leaving three of us with my father. And, you know, there was an absence of fear for a very short time and it was great, you know, I could actually breathe because fear is such a dominant emotion. You can't think or do anything else. You know, you just have to survive. It can paralyse you. And fear was my dominant emotion. When, But three weeks after my mum left, I was in church with my father. He was preparing to play the organ when he collapsed and died. And that night, I didn't realise it at the time, but my childhood was, as I knew it, you know, was really over. And I spent the next six years really just trying to survive. And they were very dark years, really like a deep winter is how I would describe them. The night my father died... I uh, remember laying on the floor where we were sleeping. We were sleeping at my doctor's house, my father's doctor's house, five of us in a row, and laying in between my siblings and thinking that if God existed, he, he couldn't love me, he, he couldn't care, because, you know, my life had been broken into pieces. 
before that, you know, I'd actually, um, I always went to church. I went to Sunday school. My mom made sure that we did. And I had a soft heart towards God. I know I did. Um, and, you know, very often that's what happens. You know, we we open our lives to to God, to Jesus, and something happens, you know, that just knocks us. And the first thing that we do sometimes is blame God. So I cut myself off, if you like, from help. But I was just a child. I, I didn't know. And so he's relentless. Jesus is relentless. He He doesn't give up. It says in, in the book of 1 John, that for this purpose was the Son of God manifest to destroy the works of the evil one. You know, maybe that the intention of the devil had been to destroy my life, to destroy the life of my mother and my family and my father. But Jesus was manifest for that purpose. There's power in his name. Well, when I was uh, 16 years old, through a set of miraculous circumstances, which would take a book really to uh, to describe, God intervened in my life in a fantastic way. But through a set of very unusual circumstances, my whole family ended up living well, in Devon. We were supposed to be buying a big house in Devon. My brother was a, a chorister at Exeter Cathedral and we were moving to be closer to him. And also because uh, my parents, my mum and stepfather had run out of money. And we were supposed to be buying a big house in Devon in a place called No Man's Land. We showed up on the doorstep with lots of animals, a whole uh, livestock lorry full and six children to discover we hadn't actually purchased a house. Um, my stepfather had been too afraid to tell mum that it had not gone through. And so the couple that owned the house that we were supposed to have bought had a decision to make and they were advised not to let us in. But they were believers, they were Christians. And after a day of dialogue with estate agents, solicitors, us sitting outside, Ruth Hill King said to her husband, Harry, Harry, we can't leave those little children on the street. And they opened their house, they opened their barns, they opened their fields and allowed my whole family to move in until we could find the money to finish the purchase on the house. And it was during that time that I learnt about Jesus properly. I'd grown up, as I say, going to Sunday school and, and I thought I knew, well, Jesus died for the sins of the world and I knew the, the gospel story, but I didn't know it really, know it, that it was relevant to me. And Harry, he was a carpenter. He had a big workshop. He, he made house signs. And I uh, I was always outside. Um, I was never really in the home. My job was to look after all the animals and so I would sneak into the workshop and talk to Harry in the middle of all the sawdust and and the um, wood shavings. He must have recognised that there was something wrong and he did something about it. He began to tell me about Jesus. I didn't realise till many years later that Harry had had a similar background, that he understood rejection, he understood fear, he understood abandonment. But he, he didn't tell me an awful lot about himself, just enough to make a connection. And he began to tell me how Jesus had changed his life. 
And, uh, you know, I, I was really cynical at this point. I thought, you know, that God just didn't exist. But slowly, slowly, the Holy Spirit began to warm my heart. And one day after watching Jesus of Nazareth, it was Easter time, and I'd seen a passage where Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, watching Jesus go to the cross, was quoting Isaiah 53. You can go and read it. It's an amazing passage written thousands of years before Jesus died and rose again. But it describes... It describes his life and his death. He gave himself a sin offering for many, it says. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as I watched that, I went, I thought, I've I've got to see if this is real. I, I went and found a Bible and I looked it up. And as I read it, I drew a picture from the the front cover, actually, of the book Jesus of Nazareth with Robert Powell dressed as Jesus in a in a robe with a crown of thorns and I, I drew this picture and I began to think about Jesus for the first time properly in my life. I took the picture to show Harry and he said to me, well, we don't make graven images. He, he, uh, he had a brethren background, but he could see that God was drawing me. And so... I guess about three, four weeks later, I was on my own delivering some goat's milk um, in a, on a, one of these old Devon lanes, very small, closed Devon lanes. Um, and I was thinking about everything. I was thinking about all these things. And I prayed the first real prayer that I ever prayed in faith. I said, Jesus, if you're real, you know, like Harry says you are, would you come and change me the way that you changed Harry? Well, I immediately felt a warmth in my heart and I thought, wow, you know, that, how, how is that possible? And then my next thought was, well, if God's real and he's heard my prayer, then why shouldn't, why shouldn't I feel different? And the difference began to become apparent immediately. I, I, I realized that swearing was wrong, that stealing from my mom's purse was wrong. Nobody told me. I just stopped doing those things. I didn't feel right about them. But I began telling Jesus everything that troubled me, everything in my life. I began to share with him. He became my best friend. And, you know, one of my first prayers was a prayer for patience. Um, I had to look after my younger siblings. I didn't want to lose my temper with them. But one of them in particular was quite challenging. And, And I pray, Lord Jesus, if you do anything for me, please make me patient. And I guess it... He, he, he definitely answered that prayer and it, it, he needed to because I have nine children, as I said, and I've needed patience. So to cut a long story short, you know, my whole life, it changed my whole life, the direction of my life. And Jesus is still my best friend, my closest friend today. Um, I go to him with everything. But I don't I want to pick up on one thing, uh, my relationship with my mom. You know, that broken relationship that seemed like it could never be repaired. If I'd never, if I'd not become a Christian, I decided, you know, I was just going to leave home and never see her again. I had a plan. I would leave when I was 17. God had a plan. He would change me. He would save me when I was 17. But, um, I, you know, C.S. Lewis, who, who most people know, is a Christian writer. He wrote the Narnia books. He said... And I'm quoting him. 
Everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has something to forgive. And it was very difficult, the process of forgiving my mom. It wasn't a one-time thing. I forgave her and everything was was over with. Over the next, I don't know how many years, until she died in 2014, I struggled to forgive my mom. <coughs> Excuse me. Initially, it was just that I let her stay in my life. I, I didn't shut her out. That progressed to talking to her about the past. She never really apologised. Um, you know, she just said that maybe the trauma she felt her mother had gone through escaping the war had affected her. I didn't think that was a good excuse at the time. But I, I tried. My mum was the gauge by which I measured everything else. I had to forgive her. I had to forgive her. I would not hold things against her. Well, in 2014 she, or 2013, she became very ill with cancer. My mum had always been strong throughout her life. She was a larger-than-life figure. You know, nothing daunted her. But she fought this battle with cancer, a very aggressive cancer, and, you know, it, in the end, took her life, but it weakened her. And right before she died, we had a conversation. She could barely speak. But we connected and I knew that she loved me and I knew that I loved her. It was the last conversation that any of us was to have with her over the phone. And she died, I think, two days later. So it brought some kind of closure. We made that connection. But God wasn't finished with me. He wanted to root out all the um, fear and uh, abandonment and anxieties and unforgiveness that I had towards my mom. And he wanted to show me my mom in a different light. Well, as I stood before her coffin and in, at her funeral, I realised I, I didn't know her at all. I knew her very, very well. I could anticipate her every move. I knew her intimately in that sense, but I didn't know her at all. And the realisation then came that she didn't know who she was either. She had no one to refer to. And so I prayed that God would help me find her family. And, you know, there's a God in heaven, it says in Daniel, who will reveal mysteries. I like what Solomon said. He said, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter and the glory of kings to search out a matter. And I decided I was going to search this out. I was going to find out where she came from, why she'd been left, who her parents were, whether she was really Jewish as she believed that she was and her family had been lost in the Holocaust. So I prayed and, you know, I began to search and during this search, I, I found myself at the computer one day asking, Jesus, could you tell me if I'm Jewish or not? I don't know why I even prayed it. I just felt that God wanted me to know. A few days later, I had contact with a, a Jewish genealogist from Glasgow who was able to confirm to me that, yes, my grandmother was fully Jewish. Her, her community had been decimated, destroyed in the Holocaust. That led me on a, another journey and that was a journey to get to know the Jewish people because I realised that my grandmother had had to hide her identity and flee because of the threat of, of murder because she was Jewish and I wanted to know her community I wanted to know where a quarter of my DNA came from I wanted to connect with the Jewish people and that's what I've done over the last 
six years, I have I found family and, and I have very close friends in the Jewish community. And I realized that the grief that I had just was swallowed up in the grief of a people who had lost six million just 70 years previously and had been persecuted throughout the ages. They're God's ancient people, as Corrie ten Boom said. I don't know if anyone's familiar with The Hiding Place. That's an excellent, excellent book to read. Corrie ten Boom and her father hid Jews during the Holocaust, and um, some of their family members were actually killed as a result. But what I wanted to say was, you know, that God will take everything that we've been through. He has a purpose for it if we just surrender it to him. When I was in my late teens, I, I got on my knees and I prayed, Lord, what do you want for my life? And he gave me this scripture in Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And I felt that, you know, God wanted me to be a comfort and an encouragement to others because I knew what that meant for myself. I'd grown up without comfort and I knew how valuable and you know, how important encouragement to give courage is. Well, in 2018, I found myself in Jerusalem sitting across from a father who'd lost his 15-year-old daughter in a bombing because she was Jewish. He, Arnold, his name's Arnold Roth, and um, Arnold's possibly a relative of mine. We both come from the same place in Poland, our families do, and we had the same last name. So it's a possibility. But as I sat across and listened to Arnold, who's fighting for justice for his daughter, I thought of that scripture, comfort, comfort my people. And I realized that God had a far greater plan than I, re I could ever recognize. So I, I just wanted to say to anybody here, you know, don't give up. It doesn't matter what you've been through. Jesus is there. He wants to be with you. He wants to help you. He wants to make all things beautiful. But, you know, it's a process, it's a journey, and we have to be willing to put one step in front of the other, but with our hand in his. I would like to take this opportunity to pray and also to share some scripture with you. I know that all our stories are different. We have, we're individuals, you know, with, with lives that contain all kinds of things, you know, heartache and sorrow, loss and joy you know, and happiness. We're made up of so many different parts. We all have had different experiences. Some of you may have had similar experiences to me. You might have experienced abuse. In other cases, you could be an abuser, you know, or maybe you've been both or neither. But, but because we've been born into a broken world and we live with people who've also been born into a broken world, we need somebody to redeem us. We need somebody to put those broken pieces back together. In the book of John, chapter 6, when Jesus had broken the bread and fed 5,000, he instructed his disciples, when everybody had finished eating, to gather up the fragments that remained because he wanted nothing to be lost. What did those little pieces of bread mean? Why were they needed? Jesus wastes nothing. There could be fragments of your life that you think could never be redeemed, that you want to shut away in the background and never look at again. Sometimes it's important 
to leave things completely alone and move on. I understand that. That's that's important. But you see, God does waste nothing. And all the pieces that we give to him, he has a plan and a purpose. To finish, I want to read Isaiah 53. It was the passage of scripture that first drew me to Jesus, that first got me, got his attention. Or, you know, it, it made me realize that, that this Jesus that I'd learned about as a child, he either had to be who he said he was or who was he? And uh, it, it's been a passage of scripture that's given me strength and comfort throughout my my life, throughout my Christian life. So I'm going to read it because I, I want to focus our attention on him. And then I'm going to pray. This is Isaiah 53. It was written in 740 BC, 740 years before Christ. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, that brought our peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, although he'd done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offering, his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. After he's suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life to death, he was numbered with the transgressions. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. transgressors. The Bible says that Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. Jesus is always praying for us. He prayed for us before he went to the cross and he continues to pray for us. He bore our griefs. He carried our suffering. Jesus was wounded so that we could be healed. Now that is my testimony. I came to Jesus because I believed that he'd done that. I reached out to him in faith and he met me 
and he's been with me ever since. I still bring him my griefs. I still bring him the things that hurt me. I bring him everything. And so I want to encourage you to do the same thing. I'm going to take a moment to pray and we're going to, I just want, would like you to lift the broken pieces of your life to him. Offer them, offer them to him so that he can gather them together and use them, make them into something that can touch and help other people, but that can also bring you peace. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you bore everything for us on that cross. Lord Jesus, that you gave your life as a sin offering for many. Lord Jesus, I thank you that when I reached out to you for that first time, just as a frightened 16-year-old child, you answered me, you heard me, you met me, you healed me, you continue to heal me. Lord, I bring you every person that is listening today. Father, I pray that you would touch their hearts. Lord, as they offer the broken pieces of their lives to you, things that they've kept hidden and, and shut away, afraid to look at. Lord Jesus, you see everything. You are the God who sees. Lord, you see into our hearts. You see the things that you want to release us from and those pieces of our lives that you want to heal and touch others. Lord, we are to offer comfort to others with the comfort that we have received from you. So, Father, I pray right now that you touch people's lives, that you touch people's hearts, that you bring comfort, that you bring healing, that you bring release, and that you take those things, that you take our lives, Lord, that we offer to you, and that you use them for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.